This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we look at a cornerstone of Christian scripture in a wholly new way, as our guest, Professor Scott McKnight, invites us to read the book of Romans from the back to the front in order to understand in new ways what Paul was trying to say to us, not only in the first century, but for the 21st century. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Scott McKnight. He's the Julius R. Manti Chair of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Lyle, Illinois. He's the author of some 75 books, and he's been interviewed frequently by media across the country. He's a sought-after speaker to churches, conferences, colleges, and seminaries in the United States and around the world. He blogs at the popular Jesus Creed blog on the Pathios website, and today we're discussing his recent book, Reading Romans Backwards, a God Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. Professor Scott McKnight, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks for having me on. So what I'd like to do is to get my listeners familiar with you and your work. They've probably read you, but if you wouldn't mind, tell us how long you have been studying the New Testament and how long you have been engaged, particularly in this kind of scholarship on Paul. I became serious about Bible study as a senior in high school and uh, began to teach myself Greek because my youth pastor was interested in Greek and uh, helped me along. And then I studied uh, history and Bible in college, went to seminary and did a PhD. So I have been at this field of study since 1971. So, you know, quite a while. And I've been seriously reading Paul the entire time, but I avoided writing about Paul until about the last 10 years. Now, why did you avoid writing about Paul? What was the hesitation there? Well, my field of, uh, my first interest in, in academic studies was in the Gospel of Matthew and Jesus studies. And because where I was teaching in different locations, there were other people whose first study, first discipline was Paul. They got the trump cards, and they got to teach those courses. So I was teaching Jesus courses and writing, therefore, about Jesus, and um, didn't get to concentrate as much on Paul until I came to Northern Seminary. Now, you would think that having a focus on Jesus would make you an ideal candidate to teach Paul, because all Paul wants to talk about Jesus and him crucified. So help my listeners understand what is the division, if you will, in scholarship between Pauline studies and studies that focus on Jesus. You've opened up Pandora's box here, David. The, um, 
It is very interesting that uh, in the field of New Testament studies and the academy, and I'm talking about at universities, even at seminaries, there are divisions and di- of disciplines. Some people study the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Some people study John, which is different than the Synoptics. Some people study Luke and Acts. Other people study Paul. Other people study John. And then some people study what is sometimes humorously referred to as the leftovers, and that's the other people like James and Hebrews and Peter. It is fascinating that the scholarship and the work of students in each of those fields is so intense, it takes a full-time scholar just to keep up with what's going on in all these fields. Every day, I get notifications, new books, and it is very difficult to keep up in any of these fields, and probably... Pauline studies is one of the most intense fields of New Testament studies, along with, just to say, broad, general, Jesus and the Synoptic Gospels. And so when you did turn to the teaching of Paul, you said about 10 years ago, was there anything that surprised you when you began to work with that material in the classroom with students? David, in my teaching career, Uh, I would teach, for instance, a survey of the New Testament, and I found students intensely interested in Jesus. And I would find students get a haze over their eyes when we turn from the Gospels to Romans or to Paul's letters. And when that happened, I was always trying to find a way to make connection. And what I learned in teaching that kind of transition was that what connected people today with Paul was his amazing vision of bringing Jews and Gentiles together that spoke to our ethnic uh, diversity and divisions in American culture. So I found an avenue into Paul right there, and it surprised me Um, As someone who grew up in a church that was, I I would often say, was almost entirely Paul, it surprised me at one point why more people didn't resonate with Paul, and then it surprised me even more where I found that they did resonate with Paul, and that's where I began. And I wrote a a book called Fellowship of Difference, which is more of a lay-level book about how Paul creates a vision of Jews and Gentiles together, men and women, slaves and free. He uses some ethnic stereotypes like Scythians and barbarians. These people are all being brought together, and I found that this was a way of entering the conversation and making Paul a little bit more relevant today. It was, it was a lot of fun for me. Now, you mentioned a moment ago that in churches, Paul and Paul's writings have a central place but you also said that your students had a hesitancy for engaging with the writings of Paul. Where do you think that disconnection came from, where it's central to the conversations in our worship life, perhaps, but it's it's something that makes us leery or skeptical when we walk into the classroom to try and study it? Well, this is a complex field, but I think I can say it this way. There are two kinds of churches, David. 
there are Jesus churches and there are Paul churches. Not that either one of them will say that or admit that, but people in some churches frame everything, discuss everything, think everything through the lens of the life of Jesus, the practice of Jesus, the deeds of Jesus, whereas there are other churches that think through the lens of Paul and Romans and 1 Corinthians and Galatians, and they think theologically and they talk about Augustine and Luther and Calvin, whereas um, the other churches talk about um, social justice and doing the right thing. And I, I'm finding that this is characteristic of, of churches today and in the evangelical church, Fifty years ago, Paul was the dominant voice, but increasingly among evangelicals, the Gospels, Jesus has become the dominant voice. And I don't mean by that that those who focus on Paul don't care about Jesus, but there are ways of framing things and thinking. And those who grow up thinking through Paul have maybe a little struggle, have, to have a learning curve on trying to think about the kingdom of God and the life that Jesus talks about, the Sermon on the Mount. Whereas those who grow up with the Sermon on the Mount and the Kingdom of God, they start reading Romans, and Paul's talking about justification and reconciliation and sin and flesh and the world and death, and they're going, whoa, this isn't the way I've learned to think about uh, my faith. So there's, there's a big learning curve for each of those groups as they encounter the other part of the New Testament, and I believe that what we need more of are, are Christians who invite the whole New Testament to the table so that we hear a diverse set of voices about how to understand the goodness of God's grace in the gospel. That division that you just talked about between the Jesus churches and the Paul churches, that's fascinating, and we're going to dig into that as we get into this conversation, because part of the structure of your book, Reading Romans Backwards, looks at an ancient version of that kind of division, if you will. But for right now, before we end this first segment, I just want to ask one more question, and that is, could you help us to understand briefly the role that the Book of Romans has played in the development of the Church, particularly since the Protestant Reformation? I, I think I can give a big picture here. Romans is the most significant biblical document, individual book in the Bible, for Christian theology. It influenced massively the theology of the 3rd and 4th centuries, I'm thinking of people like Augustine. It was behind everything Thomas Aquinas wrote in the Catholic Church. It was uh, huge for Luther's own conversion, his own framing of Christian theology, his catechism. It was huge for John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. And because it was big for those two, it became big for all Protestants and evangelicalism in the United States today is one version of that Protestant vision, and it's deeply rooted to with Calvin and Luther and Augustine, and therefore with the Book of Romans. Romans is the most significant biblical book in the history of Christian theological thinking. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Professor Scott McKnight. He teaches at Northern Seminary in Lyle, Illinois, and we're talking about his recent book, Reading Romans Backwards, A Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Professor Scott McKnight. He is the Julius R. Manley Chair of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Lyle, Illinois. We're discussing his recent book, Reading Romans Backwards, A Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. Okay, before the break, we were talking about the fact that Romans is the most significant book in Christian development since the Protestant Reformation. And the thesis of your book if I may put it into one sentence, is that because of the way that we have been reading the book of Romans, we have been missing some of the central message. And so the hypothesis that you're giving to the reader is that if we rearrange the order of reading, we begin to see a new emphasis emerge from this book. So first of all, talk to me about the thought process that led you to make that suggestion for a different way of reading the book of Romans. Uh, the first thought process is this, that theology is, an ac- is often an academic debate about meanings of terms, and it can be intense. Justification by faith has become an endless debate among scholars, and therefore people go to Romans 1 through 8, especially chapters 4 and 5, and, and really argue on what Paul meant by these terms. In the process of doing that, and in the process of Christian theology, the focus has always been on Romans 1 through 8. But for many, many years, I have been reading Romans on a regular basis. And when I get to chapters 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, I think to myself, there is a lot of stuff here that is realistic. It's about the church in Rome, and it's why Paul wrote the letter. People get so worn out by reading Romans 1 through 8. And David, it is a hard read to get someone to read Romans 1 through 8 in one evening. It's just really hard. It's an intricate argument. Paul makes you stop and pause, and you wonder what he meant by this and that. In fact, Romans is so hard at times that people get to chapter 9 and they quit, and sometimes by the time they get to chapter 12, They've so petered out, they don't even want to mess around with the rest of the book. And yet, we're taught from, in, in so many ways, if we want to understand an author, we have to understand that author's land. We have to go to that author's land. And I believe that it is in Romans 12 through 16, it's not just that I believe it, it is Romans 12 through 16 provides the context for why Paul wrote this letter. He tells us about an intense argument that is causing deep divisions among Christians in the city of Rome. One group he calls weak, and another group he calls strong. 
and they are at one another's throats. One group thinks it's the privileged people, and another group thinks it's the privileged people. It becomes a battle of privilege, and let's face it, there's some ethnic element packed in, and once you start reading it carefully and paying attention to the strong and the weak, you wonder if Paul isn't writing this letter to 2019 Americans in the United States who are Christians fighting with one another and on Sunday can hardly even worship with one another if they're not in the same political or socioeconomic grouping. So if I'm hearing you correctly, we start reading in chapter 1 of Romans, and by the end of chapter 8 or 9, we get so petered out, to use your words, we get so pooped by the process that we don't have the energy and we abandon the book before we get to this segment of chapters 12 through 16. But if I'm hearing you correctly, it's chapters 12 through 16 which unlock and give the context for understanding those first nine or ten chapters. First of all, have I heard you correctly? Yes, you have, and I firmly believe this. If I could get people, we, people all know about what's going on in one through eight in general. They know about salvation and justification and faith, etc. If they would start in chapters 12 to 16 and come to terms with what Paul is saying about the strong and the weak and sort of uh, make a profile of each group and sketch it out and say, this is the, these are the two groups, and then start reading Romans 1 through 8 and ask this question at the end of every paragraph. Now, who, who most likely needed to hear this of these two groups, the strong and weak? Or, after you read a paragraph, say, what would the weak have thought of this, and what would the strong have thought of this? By the time you do this through eight chapters, you will have read Paul more accurately, and you'll have a fresh new reading of Romans that enhances and expands and improves our old reading of the Apostle Paul. So let's spell it out and make it very plain for my listeners. What is at stake here? What's the danger for reading Paul in the more traditional way, of sort of getting to those first nine or ten chapters and then kind of abandoning it and really not paying attention to that context? What do we lose, and what possible harm can we do when we read the book that way? Okay, I'll, I'll put it this way. If we read Romans 1 through 8, and it becomes an argument with other Christians that leads us to dividing ourselves from the Lutherans or the Presbyterians, or the Wesleyans, or the Methodists, we are doing the very opposite with Paul's letter that he intended. This letter was meant to be a letter that had a theology that was to form unity among divided Christians. So if we can read Romans 1-8, through 8, and it causes division in the Church over our theology, we have done the opposite of what the Apostle Paul said. What's at stake is the unity of the Church in reading Romans accurately and correctly. That's amazing. And so now we know what the stakes are for us in this conversation. So we are looking towards a reading that brings about church unity and helps us understand Paul's mission of church unity there in that first century. So let's go back to a term, a couple of terms that you've used several times in this conversation. You've talked about the weak and the strong. And help, help my listeners to understand 
how you have come to grasp the meaning of these two terms, the weak and the strong, in this context of chapters 12 through 16 in Paul's book of Romans. The strong are Gentile believers who have high social status. Paul calls them in Romans 15, 1, the powerful. So I think that's a better translation than the strong. Uh, The strong, that sounds okay. The powerful and the weak as the disempowered, perhaps, uh, or the unpowerful. The strong are Gentiles who believe in Jesus, who have high social status in the Roman Empire, and who think following the law of Moses is bunkum. And they don't see any reason why they should be worried about pork laws or Sabbath laws or with whom to eat and what to eat. Whereas the weak are Jewish believers who believe in the Bible, who believe that God's people ought to be following the whole Bible, including Moses' laws, and that they think the Gentiles are thumbing their nose and flouting, flaunting their freedom in Christ, and they need to listen to God's Word and follow the law more carefully. Uh, And so we have two groups of Christians who both think that the strong believers think they're privileged because they have status in the Roman Empire, and the weak believers think they're privileged because they are Jewish and have the heritage of Moses' law and Scripture as a part of what they've grown up with. And they are arguing about the best way to be the people of God, and they, they can hardly sit down at table and eat with one another without it turning into a fight. And that's why Paul says, I want you to welcome one another without arguments. And his point is, eat with one another, and I don't want to hear any fights. Let's focus on the unity that we have in the gospel, that the Spirit of God is upon us, bringing us together as the people of God, and we need to see one another as siblings, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and not as enemies, and who is strong and who is weak. Thank you for that clarification, and I just want to stay with that for one moment, because in your book, Reading Romans Backwards, you take this distinction between the strong Gentiles and the weak Jews, and you make sure that the reader understands that we're not speaking about Gentiles universally, and we're not speaking about Jews universally, but instead we're talking about a particular subset within the Christian tradition, the early Christian tradition, that come from different ethnic backgrounds and are looking at different source materials for understanding their relationship to Jesus Christ. First of all, have I got that distinction the way that you intended in the the book, or or would you say it in a different way? No, David, I think that's a perfect description, is that these are, Paul's argument is about is, a, is a with the people in the church. He's not talking to Gentiles in general, because if he is, he would have turned them totally off it in the first chapter. And he's not talking to Jews in general. He's talking to believers in Christ. He's talking, as it were, to Baptists and Anglicans over how, to, how best to baptize. Uh, now, that's my analogy to something going on today. And they can't, they, they want to fight about it so much they can't even sit down 
over barbecue and enjoy one another. I think that that's something that we miss sometimes, is the sheer diversity of the early church there in the city of Rome, isn't it? Oh, the diversity is remarkable. And I've often told my students, if you were in a first century church, you would not recognize it. It is nothing like ours. These are in houses, in a living room, and this is all there is to it. And it's the, and you might be one of four or five in Rome house churches in the whole city, maybe 150 people, but probably closer to 100. That's the entire Church of Rome spread out in at least five house churches. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. We're speaking today with Dr. Scott McKnight. He's professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Lyle, Illinois. We're discussing his recent book, Reading Romans Backwards, A Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Scott McKnight. He's professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Lyle, Illinois. We're talking about his recent book, Reading Romans Backwards, A Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. Well, Professor McKnight, there were many things about your book that I absolutely loved, but one of the things that was most profound for me was the central place that you gave to Phoebe in this whole unfolding narrative that happens in the book of Romans. Phoebe, in your words, is literally the voice of Paul in these house churches that we were talking about in the last segment. She was the one who was commissioned to deliver the letter in vocal form. She basically did an oral reading of the letter for these house churches. First of all, tell us who Phoebe was. Paul tells us in Romans 16, he commends, or he writes, he commends a woman named Phoebe. She's from Cancrea, which is over in Greece near Corinth. It's on, uh, it's on a coast. Uh, there's not much ruins left in, in Cancrea today. Uh, he says that uh, she has helped many people, especially himself, in his missionary work, in supporting him, and he calls her a deacon and a, a patron or someone who's benevolent in helping out Paul and says, I want you to receive her and receive her well and treat her the way it would be appropriate for someone of her status. All right, now here's, here's what we, we're pretty sure of, and that is that that is the location where a letter writer uh, talks about what is called a courier or a letter carrier. And in early Christianity... It is quite likely that the letter courier was the one who read the letter to the congregation. It's possible that C.B. didn't read it, but taught someone in Rome how to read it, but I doubt that. I think C.B. very likely was the letter reader. And if she was the reader, she didn't read the letter the way some people read the Bible in uh, public gatherings on Sunday morning who are looking at the passage for the first time and they mispronounce names and geographical locations and stumble over proper pauses, 
she would have been taught by Paul, and this applies to anyone who would have read any of Paul's letters, like Tychicus probably read Colossians and Philemon. So Phoebe would have been taught by Paul how to read this, what to emphasize, what words to emphasize, where to pause, who you look at when you get to this verse, who you don't look at when you get to this verse. She also would have been responsible in the process of reading this letter to answer questions, because first century audiences did not sit there. Phoebe would have been given the responsibility of reading this letter in a, in a way that we would today call performing. She would have been acting it out as if she were Paul, speaking to this congregation, looking at the right people, avoiding eye contact with other people, pausing, asking questions, expecting people to answer those questions so she would have given time as she read this letter for each question to be answered. Some of these questions would have been answered aloud, and Paul sometimes answers his own questions, and she would have paused and let those people answer, then she would have given Paul's answer, and then there may have been a little tussle, a little argument, some question, why did Paul say this? Why, why, why would he even say, think something like this? That sort of thing is going on. She would have ad-libbed when she's looking at the audience and, and thinking, I don't think they quite understand what he's saying. She would have clarified it. Uh, she would have simplified it for some people who didn't quite know what he was talking about. So that, was a, that would have been Phoebe's responsibility. And I want to emphasize People would have been asking questions. Now, David, I've been reading Romans a long time, and maybe you have too, but you cannot read many of those paragraphs in Romans without having about three or four questions. So this, this would have taken a long time. It takes about 90 minutes to perform Romans, and I'm guessing that this was a three- to four- to five-hour performance when questions are being asked, and she would have had to answer them, and she had to do this at least five times in the different house churches in Rome. So this, this gives a whole new flavor for what's going on in this letter with people on both sides of the, uh, of the aisles not too happy with some of the things that Paul is saying. What does this tell us, not only about the role of Phoebe, but the role of women in the early church? We can infer from this that Phoebe was a leader in the church of Cancrea, which probably also indicates a leader in the church of Corinth. So one of Paul's major churches had significant influence from women leaders. But what is noticeable about Romans 16, verses 3 to 16, where Paul begins to mention names, is the prominence or the significance of women in the house churches of Rome that Paul knows who have played an important part in his ministry throughout the uh, Mediterranean. So these are, these are people who've moved to Rome, many of whom who've just returned to Rome, some of whom, and these are people that Paul knows have been successful and faithful in gospel ministry. So I would say that we learn from Romans 16 that women played a significant role 
in early Christianity as leaders, as teachers, as supporters, as evangelists, as house church leaders, as house church hosts, that women would have been very noticeable in their presence. That's a somewhat controversial claim to make, given the positions of some of the various denominations in today's church. So I'm wondering, have you ever gotten pushback when you've taught this, or when you have when you have made this kind of claim, have, have you gotten any kind of significant challenge to that kind of interpretation of this, of this aspect of Phoebe's role in Romans? I think most people will accept, uh, as just simply historical description, the significance of Phoebe in this letter as the letter courier. Um, and now not everybody's going to think she performed it, but everybody has to admit that she's the one who had the private information from Paul and she's the one who would have had to clarify had questions come up. So she played, the, if she didn't read the letter, she was clearly the first commentator on the letter. No one can question the significance of women in Romans chapter 16. But yes, David, uh, there is pushback by a group of people that often call themselves complementarians who think that, um, that some people, like me, are pushing this button too often that we are prone to emphasize the role of women in the early church, whereas we would push back and say we think other people are diminishing the role of women in the early church. So there's a bit of a battle on that, and it's been going on for 20, 30 years, and uh, I'm okay with stating what I believe, because I think that's what the Bible teaches. I'm not afraid of what the Bible teaches on this one, and I, I just think we should emphasize it. Well, I just want to stay with that for one moment. Sometimes in these kinds of arguments, a person will say, well, I'm just saying what the text on the page plainly says. How would you respond to someone who says, no, I look at what Paul has written about the role of women teaching, and it plainly says this. It it seems like you want to bring a more nuanced reading, but how would you sell that kind of more nuanced reading to a person who is convinced that the plain words on the page are sufficient to answer these kinds of complex questions? Well, Paul calls Junia an apostle, a great apostle in Romans 16. He talks about Priscilla, or Prisca, as a female. He talked about Mary, so he, and he talked about Phoebe, and he talked about other women. So my push on this is, uh, what did women do in the Bible? W-D-W-D, what did women do? And this is what I think we need to focus on. If we want to claim biblical authority for what we believe about women in ministry in the churches, then I believe we have to examine the Bible and ask that question, what does the Bible say women did? Priscilla taught. She taught Apollos. Junia was an apostle. Women in Corinth were prophets. Now, those are pretty significant positions in the early church. So I believe that, uh, it, yeah, I, I know the argument, oh, it's the plain reading of Scripture, and people use that because they want to dismiss the other side or something like that. But I do think uh, the Bible is clear that we should be able to trust its words to speak with authority and clarity to us. There are some things that are not clear. Good grief. Peter says that Paul's letters sometimes were not clear. But we know uh, that we can look at what Paul says about women or what the Bible says about women 
and we could see descriptions of what women were doing. And those are the two uh, types of scriptures that I think we need to work together to bring them into harmony, to describe the sorts of things that women did then so that we can become more biblical in what women do in our churches today. So I wonder, over these 10 years of teaching Paul and wrestling with the Book of Romans in public with students, how has your faith changed? What has been the impact on your life of faith as a result of wrestling with these, with these scriptures? I think it's been an intensification and an illumination of themes that have been uh, sort of dormant in my life. I would say in the last 10 years, they've, they've evolved together. They've, they've been, I mean, there wasn't anything brand spanking new about Romans when I began to write the book because I've been teaching like this for a long time. But there's something, David, in the writing process that brings clarity to one's thinking. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Scott McKnight. He's professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Lyle, Illinois. We're discussing his recent book, Reading Romans Backwards, A Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Dr. Scott McKnight. He's professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Lyle, Illinois, and we're discussing his recent book, Reading Romans Backwards, A Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. Well, Dr. McKnight, in your analysis of Paul's book of Romans in your book, Reading Romans Backwards, you put forward the thesis that Paul's goal in all of this is to create Christiformity, and I just want our listeners to understand what you mean by this term, Christoformity. What does that mean, and how should we understand it? One of the greatest uh, lyrical uh, moments of glory from the Apostle Paul is Romans chapter 8, and as that chapter winds up or comes to its climactic ending of glory about the, uh, uh, how we're un, unseparable, from the love of God, Paul tells us very clearly that, that God has, the Father has destined us to be conformed to the image of the Son. I call that conformity to the image of the Son, Christoformity, that we will become Christ-like, conformed to who Christ is. We need to back off of that and say, in what sense? I think that we... Uh, that we learn that we have to be conformed to the teachings of Jesus. 
So we should know the Gospels. We have to be conformed to the life of Jesus, how Jesus lived, how he interacted with sinners, how he interacted with his disciples, how he taught and uh, conducted his life by example. We have to be conformed to the death of Jesus. Jesus said, those who follow me must take up their cross. We have to also be conformed to the resurrection of Christ. In Romans chapter 6, Paul tells us that we have been baptized into his death and his resurrection, and that Jesus rules after his resurrection, he ascends, and that we too will judge, Paul tells us in in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So I believe that what Paul is sketching out is the largest vision of the Christian life, that we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. That is stated in Romans chapter 8 with utter clarity. It is kind of expounded in Romans chapter 6 in this section on baptism and freedom or slavery to Christ, slavery to God, being no longer slaves to sin and to the flesh. And in Romans chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and some in chapter 16, Paul gives specifics of what it looks like to have a life that can be called crystal form or Christ-like or formed into the image of Christ. And that means things like dying to self. It means being being, uh, transformed from the ways of the world into conformity to Christ. It means living in the Spirit so that we exercise the gifts. It means living with one another as siblings. It means not fighting with one another. It means pursuing peace. It means for Romans chapter 13, in a very demanding, difficult passage in the history of the Church, and has been abused, it tells us to be good citizens, to pay our taxes, etc. Uh, it would not tell us to do things that are wrong, and it tells us to get along with one another. And sometimes, Paul says, we're going to disagree, and that's okay. He said that, let that person answer to the Lord, and you answer to the Lord. And We might say this doesn't completely answer some of our problems, but it's the place we have to begin. So I believe this image of Christoformity, this term, is a great term for describing what Paul expects of us for the Christian life in Romans. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Dr. Scott McKnight about his recent book, Reading Romans Backwards, A Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. There's so much to unpack in what you just said there about Christiformity. One of the things that, that rings out in, in many portions of your book, reading, reading Romans Backwards, is that this notion of Christiformity transcends and synthesizes, it, it invites to the table, to use your language, these two different factions within the early Christian church, the strong and the weak, who we talked about earlier in the conversation. And as I began to grasp that in reading your book, I began to understand a statement that you made early in the introductory portions of reading Romans backwards, where you said that Romans is about privilege and power, and that the gospel deconstructs that privilege and power. But I wonder if you would unpack for my listeners what you meant by that statement. Okay, I think each of us needs to examine where we are, you know, let's say, to give ourselves a social location. I'm a white professor, 65 years old, toward the end of my career, not at the beginning of my career. And I think it is my responsibility as a Christian to use my gifts, whatever they are, as a teacher, as a writer, as a speaker, 
to empower other people. So I teach students, and I try to encourage them in their writing, in their speaking, in their thinking. And my responsibility is to help them become better at who they are and what God has made them to be. I don't get to make them like me. In fact, some of my students are annoying at times, I think. Why do you think like that? Why do you say things like that? And yet, it's not, I, can't, I can't make them agree with me. I have to encourage them to become what God has made them to be. What is amazing to me is the joy that we have in our classes at Northern Seminary and in my church uh, up, up in this area in the northern suburbs is the joy of getting to know people who are quite different from me and knowing that we are siblings in Christ, that we are not identical, we are not even the same. We are quite different, but that we are siblings in the same family, that God loves each of us, and that I have a responsibility to help them become the best person that they can be, and they have a responsibility to help me become better at what God has called me to do. And I think that sense of using our privilege for other, using our power for the other, is a way of deconstructing our privilege and our power, because instead of power over, we realize that we have power for. Not power over, not power under, but power for the good of other people. Well, Dr. Scott McKnight, I first encountered the writings of Paul through reading things like Karl Barth's Epistle to the Romans, and then later reading uh, J. Louis Martin's Galatians commentary. And those kinds of books really opened up for me the possibilities that are there in the writings of Paul. And I have to say, reading your book, Reading Romans Backwards, I had that same kind of feeling. And I just want to say thank you very much for taking the time to speak to me and my listeners about it today. I think it's a tremendous book, and I'm so glad that you wrote it. That is a a huge honor, David, that you said that to me about that, so thank you very much. We've been speaking today with Dr. Scott McKnight. He's the Julius R. Manti Chair of New Testament at Northern Seminary in Lyle, Illinois. He's the author of some 75 books, and he is a popular blogger. His Jesus Creed blog can be found at patheos.com. We've been discussing his recent book, Reading Romans Backwards, A Gospel of Peace in the Midst of Empire. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.